0: Take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 17. If you were with us last week, we were in Psalm 15, and uh, you might be wondering why, why did we skip Psalm 16? We we actually did a little early uh, Easter Sunday. We we looked at Psalm 16, and so if uh, if you want to dive in deeper to Psalm 16, you can go back and. Uh, and watch that, that live stream from Easter Sunday, but uh, Psalm 17 is where we are at today, and before we get there, I want to make you aware of a couple of things. First of all, tonight, uh, we have some home fellowship gatherings. Uh, we have two, and uh, if you uh, missed a bulletin on your way in, you can find them out on the table. Um, the table, right, Carmen? Over here? Okay. Uh, There's a a list of the locations where those home fellowship gatherings are going to be meeting. And so you can choose one of those two and um, feel free to come and be a part of that. We're going to spend some time uh, just hanging out, eating together, and then also discussing uh, the uh, Psalm 17, the word of the Lord that we're looking at this morning and uh, just experiencing some fellowship together. So that is tonight at 530, 530. And the locations are in the bulletin. Second. Uh, announced this last week and just want to remind you that we have an informational meeting coming up for our kids volunteers and so if you work uh, with kids in any context whether that be nursery or uh, cross trainers or Sunday school, or if you are interested in serving in kids ministry, uh, this is a meeting for you. It's going to be right after Gathered Worship next Sunday, July 10th. There'll be a lunch there. And uh, the information in that meeting is something that uh, is required for all who are serving in our kids ministry. And so the best way to get that information is to come next Sunday to uh, to the lunch meeting. If you're not able to come, though, Uh, Where We can um, uh, arrange some other uh, ways for you to get the the content in that. Uh, But again, that that will be something that we are going to uh, ask all those who are serving in any way with our kids ministry to uh, in some way get. And so if you can make that lunch next Sunday, that'll be the best way for the most number of people to get that. So that's next Sunday right after church, July 10th. Um, One last thing. We are one month away from power-up clubs. And so if you have not yet uh, signed up to help out with that, please uh, rpbchurch.org slash kids, go there and uh, sign up to volunteer. We need at least, least uh, eight more team members for the actual teams to be able to put on the clubs. And I know there are some, there are some youths who were let back off the van, even though they didn't sign up. And so thankful for the grace of God that you're here today, but sign up. Um, Okay, Um, so we have a new memory verse for this month. We have been um, making a practice every month of uh, memorizing one verse of scripture together, and since we've been in the Psalms, we've been looking uh, primarily at verses from the Psalms. This month, the month of July, our verse is going to be Psalm 1914. Let's read this together. Let the words of my mouth And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 19, 14. All right, let's turn our attention to Psalm 17 now. I mentioned last week in Psalm 15 that we are uh, in a new section of Psalms from Psalm 15 to Psalm 24. And this section of the Psalms is primarily focused on God's anointed king, the anointed king's experiences, the anointed king's character, the anointed king's relationship with Yahweh. And in Psalm 17, the psalm that we're in today, we're going to see a prayer of the Lord's anointed king. When he was afflicted by his enemies, surrounded by wicked enemies, and we're not told in the psalm what the exact background of the psalm is, but it's very likely that David wrote this psalm uh, with the the time in mind when he was being pursued by Saul. And I say that because in Psalm 17, David. Asks God for deliverance. And then in Psalm 18, God thanks God for deliverance. Seems to be a, a progression there. And in Psalm 18, at the very beginning, there's a note that says that David wrote Psalm 18 when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Uh, and so uh, it's likely that's what's in mind. Uh, we, But, of course, we, we aren't uh, told that exactly. What we are given is a general Um, sense of what David's prayer was in a moment like this when he's surrounded by opposition, when his faithfulness to Yahweh uh, bucks up against the evil around him. And so with that, let's read Psalm 17 together. And since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of Jesus himself, let's all stand together. If you're able, stand in honor of the reading of God's word. The Holy Spirit says a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love. O savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence. My deadly enemies who surround me, they close their hearts to pity with their mouths. They speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear. As a young lion lurking in ambush arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Well, we are uh, 17 Psalms deep into this book, and you might be wondering why do we keep looking at songs about David's trials. Why is it? Why are there so many that songs that seem to be about just what David particularly went through? Better yet, remember, these were first given to Israel as their hymn book. Why did Israel need to be singing about David's trials? Again, assume the background is that David is being chased by Saul. Israel was not chased by Saul. It wasn't something the whole nation was experiencing. It was something that was particular to David. And so why does Israel need to be singing this song about David and his prayer to God when he was chased by Saul? Well, the reason is because David was the king. And the king was the representative of the people. He was one man who stood for the whole nation. He was representing the whole. And so David's trials were the nation's trials and David's or excuse me, the people's deliverance was bound up in David's deliverance. As goes the king, so goes the nation. If David's cause was heard by God and answered by God, then the people's cause was answered by God and heard by God. And so David is a representative of God's people, and he's also not only a representative of God's people before God, but he's also an example to God's people of how they are to be toward God, how their hearts, what the posture of their hearts is to be in terms of their stance before God. And and it's the same for us who follow King Jesus, the offspring of David. We will face difficulty as a result of following him, just like David's trials was were Israel's trials. We face difficulty because we are following Jesus. He promised this. To follow Jesus is to walk a path that goes against the current of a world that opposes Jesus. But just like his trials are our trials and his suffering is our suffering, so his deliverance is our deliverance. Our salvation is bound up in his salvation. We will be resurrected because he is resurrected. We will experience victory because he is victorious. We will be rescued from all who oppose us and from a world that opposes God because Jesus will bring us through. We will be saved because when our king cries for salvation, he is heard. Hebrews 5, 7 says that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus is the one God answers. And we follow him. And so as we look at Psalm 17, we have in Psalm 17, the prayer of the anointed king whom God answers. And in this prayer, we not only have a text of or a record of what was on his heart. We have a portrait of who this king is. We get a glimpse at who this king is that we follow. And in that portrait, we are given an example to follow. So as we see in Psalm 17, the one God answers, Psalm 17 is is going to invite us to follow the one God answers. Jesus is the one God God answers, and we are to follow the one God answers. We're to follow him in terms of his character, We're to follow him in terms of his refuge, and we're to follow him in terms of his treasure. We're going to consider each of those. As we seek to follow the one who answers, let's first consider the character of the one God answers. In verses 1 through 5, we see the character of the one God answers. Let's walk through this psalm together. David begins the psalm by asking God to hear him in verse 1. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. And what I want you to see right out of the gate in these verses is that the basis upon which David expects God to hear him is his righteousness. That's why he expects God to hear him. He says, hear a just cause. Uh, Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Uh, He specifically mentions that his his words are not deceitful, that that his words are rather truthful, righteous. Uh, He says that his cause, the cause that he wants God to hear and defend, is a just cause. And it better be, because if David's cause is not just, he has no reason to think a just cause. God would ever get behind that cause or answer him. So that's how David begins in verse one. And then he continues to make his prayer based on his righteousness. in verse two, he says, from your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. So David wants Yahweh to acknowledge his character, acknowledge his righteousness. He he wants Yahweh to vindicate him. He's asking God to respond to this prayer in such a way that it would demonstrate God sees David's righteousness and affirms. Yes, David is, in fact, in the right and his enemies are in the wrong. He's praying for vindication. Well, so this is his opening prayer. And then in verses three through five, David details this righteous character that is the basis for why he expects God to hear him, to answer him. Verse three You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you'll find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. So David boldly declares to Yahweh, "You've, you've tested my heart like a furnace tests silver. And he specifically mentions this idea of visiting in the night. It's that time when no one else is around. It's just David and Yahweh. And even then, David says, when you examine me and no one else is around in my in my most honest and 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 sincere moments, you, you know that I'm in the right. I have a just cause. David has committed himself not to transgress, not to break God's law. And he declares God knows this about me. David mentions the role specifically of God's law again in verse 4 when he says with regard to the works of man by the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent it's God's word that has helped David avoid violence in response to his enemies and we can even think about different examples in David's life when his commitment to Yahweh and his word helped him avoid the ways of the violent think about how God used Abigail to stop David from killing Nabal or think about how twice when David was being pursued by Saul, he had the chance to kill Saul and didn't take it because of his reverence and commitment to Yahweh. Well, finally, in declaring his righteousness, David says in verse five, my steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. David has avoided the ways of the violent and instead has walked in the ways of God. And he describes himself here in Psalm one terms. He is he's not the one who walks according to the counsel of the wicked. He's the one who delights in the law of the Lord. So in these first five verses, David asserts that he has been faithful to God's law. And on that basis, he asks God to hear him and thus show By responding to his prayer that David is innocent. Now, as we walk through these verses and see what David is asserting, it's it's important that we realize that David knows he's not perfect. These are bold claims, uh, but we want to make sure we we read them correctly. David isn't saying he's perfect. He's under no delusions. What he's pointing to is the fact that he's on the path of righteousness, the right path, God's path. He seeks to do God's will. He's not sinless, and he knows it, but by the grace of God, he is faithful to obey the law. We looked last week at Psalm 15, who shall sojourn in your tent? And the answer that David gave about who can live in God's house is the one who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. And and we saw that only Jesus meets that standard perfectly, and thus it is only through the cross that we can enter God's presence. But we also saw how the grace of God that qualifies the unqualified, that, that same grace produces fruit in the life of those who are qualified by his grace. In fact, God does not justify a person without also then producing righteousness in their life. David's righteous character was a a fruit of what God had done in his heart. It was not the cause for then God to owe him something. David's righteous character was necessary, but it was not necessary to cause God to hear him. David's righteous character was a necessary result that shows he's the type of person that God hears. And this is important as we seek to apply Psalm 17 to our own lives and follow this example, because we need to avoid two ditches. There's two ditches on either side of the road. On the one hand, we shouldn't think that we have to be perfect or God will never, ever hear us. But on the other hand, we shouldn't think that if we're neglecting obedience to God and, and running headlong into our own way, that God is going to get behind any cause of ours. Solomon says in Proverbs 15, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. James five sixteen says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so when we're confronted with opposition like David in Psalm 17, we, we need to realize that we are going to be tempted to compromise God's word. Uh, The temptation will be strong not to have that character that David exhibited, not to display that righteousness that David lived out, not to follow God's word. Uh, The temptation to compromise God's word is strong, especially when we're suffering, especially when we're in a trial. We're going to be tempted to forsake the wisdom of God for the wisdom of the world, to give up what is right for what is practical and makes sense. We're going to be tempted to let our lips be filled with deceit to scheme and maneuver our way out of discomfort. Uh, We're going to be tempted to respond to those who would do us violence by jumping at the chance to retaliate with violence. But may we instead follow the example of the one God answers. The example of our King. This character that we see described in Psalm seventeen one through 5, was not demonstrated perfectly by David, but it was demonstrated perfectly by the offspring of David, our King Jesus. Turn with me to 1 Peter 2. First Peter, chapter two, and look at verses 20 to 24. For what credit is it? If when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good. And suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Here's his example. Here's how here's what it looks like to follow Christ and his suffering. Verse 22. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit. Found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus is the one God the Father always answers. And he is the one with this perfectly righteous character. His lips were perfectly free of deceit. He perfectly avoided the ways of the violent. Despite all of the suffering he endured, he never transgressed God's law. And that character, that example, he has left for us to follow. When we face opposition as his disciples, when we face suffering, When we experience the kind of difficulty and opposition that we see David experiencing in 17, how how do we respond? We follow the character of the one that God answers. May we let Psalm 17 move us to be faithful to God's word as David was and as Jesus was perfectly. May we follow in the footsteps of the anointed king, this one that God answers. May we imitate his righteous character, even as we face difficulty in following him. Because the kind of person who God answers is the kind of person who obeys God. Well, we've seen the character of the one God answers, the character that is steadfast, even when it's not celebrated the character that's steadfast even when it's opposed and results in suffering. Second, though, let's look at the refuge of the one God answers. In verses 6 through 12, we see the refuge of the one God answers. As David continues this psalm, he goes on to ask for God's protection, beginning in verse 6. So uh, turn back with me to Psalm 17, and let's look at verse 6. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Again, David prays because he expects God to answer. The portrait we have in Psalm 17 is the one God answers. He is praying, and what does he pray for? Verse 7, wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior Of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. David's prayer, this prayer that he expects God to answer, is a prayer that Yahweh would demonstrate, show his covenant-keeping love, his promise-keeping faithfulness. God has committed himself to David because he is his anointed king. And so David asks God to act accordingly, to do what he said he would do, to treat David as the one who he has set his steadfast love on. David here identifies Yahweh as the savior of those who take refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. When people place their faith in Yahweh for protection from their enemies, he saves them. Yahweh saves all who turn to him for refuge. This is who he is. And David takes refuge in the God of steadfast love. This is the refuge of the one God answers. His prayer for protection continues in verse eight. He says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. The apple of the eye is the pupil and because it's such a sensitive part of the body. You know, we instinctively, reflexively close our eyes when something gets near it. We we cover our eyes with our hands to protect this delicate part of our body. And David is asking God to protect him with that level of care, that level of sensitivity. These two pictures in verse eight. These pictures of protection connect back to the song of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 32, you don't have to turn there, but just listen to verses 10 through 12 as Moses describes Yahweh's care for Israel. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. This is the tender care. That David is asking Yahweh to show him. It's the care that he shows to his covenant people. Well. David asks for God's protection as he's seeking refuge in Yahweh in verses 6 through 8. And then he starts to describe what he needs protection from, beginning in verse 9. He needs protection from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. So there's these wicked people trying to harm David. Again, likely uh, Saul is the one in mind and those with him. Uh, Instead of giving into the ways of the violent in retaliation, though, David is turning to God for protection. He's turning to him in prayer. He is putting his refuge, his confidence and God's steadfast love and justice, not what he can do by his own power. David goes on to further describe the wickedness of the enemies in verse 10. They close their hearts to pity with their mouths. They speak arrogantly. Uh, So the the wicked are without compassion. They have callous hearts. Pity requires humility. Uh, Compassion requires seeing another person as as being at the same level as you, uh, seeing their shared humanity. But these wicked see themselves as being above David, they see David as being below them. They're arrogant and they speak arrogantly, no doubt boasting in their own power and dominance. This is what David is up against. People who don't have pity toward him, who just want to do him harm. David goes on in verse 11. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. Uh, He's surrounded these wicked are set on his demise. Verse 12 paints the picture. He's like a lion, eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. His enemy is a predator. He's eager to pounce. And so David asks God for protection. In the midst of these enemies that he is surrounded by, who are seeking him harm, who have no pity on him, he's asking God to protect him. He's finding refuge in God. He's seeking refuge from his adversaries at the Savior's right hand. The one God answers finds refuge in God. This was true of David, and it's most true of Jesus. We read earlier from 1 Peter 2 how when Jesus suffered and was reviled, he entrusted himself to his father. He found refuge in his father all the way to his dying breath, with which he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When we're pressed, when we're surrounded, when we're confronted like David, may we not give in to the temptation to turn to other sources of refuge. When we're pressed, we are going to be tempted to turn to all sorts of things to find refuge for our hearts. You can numb your feelings with food and drink and prescriptions and all sorts of things. You can escape or ignore your situation with entertainment or leisure. Or you can set your heart on the love of God for you in Christ. Turn with me to Romans 8. We can find refuge in God's love, even in the midst of suffering, even as we face adversity. Look at verses 35 to 39 of Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are in Christ, no matter what you face, whatever difficulty, whatever pain, however bad it gets, God has never stopped loving you. You might be facing a trial that seems like more than you can bear. God hasn't stopped loving you. When the pain reaches a level that you don't think you can take anymore, God hasn't stopped loving you. You might be in danger, but God has not stopped loving you. Our God is the Savior Of those who take refuge from their adversaries at his right hand. He will. Will save us. From all. That afflicts us. Even if we have to suffer for a time before he does. Let me say that again. He will save us if we are in Christ. Christ. God will save us from everything that afflicts us. Even if for a time we have to endure, even if for a time we have to wait before he does deliver us. Listen to what Peter says in first Peter five, eight through 11, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Because God loves us, we can trust that he will protect our souls through suffering. And ultimately, he will deliver us from the trials of this life. The, the one God answers finds refuge in God's love. Well, well, as we turn our attention back to Psalm 17, we've seen the character of the one God answers in the first five verses. And we saw the refuge of the one God answers and in the last three verses, verses 13 through 15. We see the treasure of the one God answers, the treasure of the one God answers. David ends Psalm 17 asking Yahweh not only to protect him, but also to defeat his enemies. Beginning in verse 13, arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. David is confronted by people trying to do him harm with their sword. So he asks Yahweh to take up his sword and defeat his enemies, delivering him. And David goes on to give an interesting description of the enemies that he's asking Yahweh to defeat. In verse 14, he says, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world, whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. So David describes where his enemy's treasure is. Their portion, their inheritance, their wealth is only in this life. Everything that they're investing in is what can be acquired and enjoyed between now and the grave. But he also describes where this treasure is from and he says that God gave them what they have. God blessed them with children. God gave them wealth to pass down to their descendants. And it, it may seem like this is a bit of an odd left turn at the end of this psalm. I mean, and isn't this odd that Yahweh would bless the wicked like this? Doesn't that kind of send a mixed message about whose side Yahweh is on? Well, it it doesn't if you realize just how much those blessings actually pale in comparison to true treasure. If your portion is only in this life, if you have all the treasure in the world, but that's all you have, and you don't know God, you have nothing. If your portion is only in this life, even if you have all the treasure in the world, but you don't know God, you have nothing. Jesus told the story of a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus who both died. The poor man's soul went to a place of comfort. The rich man's soul went to a place of torment. And Abraham said to the rich man in Luke 16, 25, child, remember that in your lifetime, you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. The rich man's portion was in this life. Lazarus's portion was in God. Similar to Lazarus, David says this about himself in verse 15. In contrast to the wicked enemies whose portion is only in this life, David says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. It's like David said in Psalm 16:5, The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup, you hold my lot. For David, ultimate satisfaction cannot be found in anything that only lasts for this life. David's greatest treasure is not in any of God's gifts. His greatest treasure is in God himself. David will not be satisfied with anything less than the very face of God. He knows only God can satisfy, as he wrote in Psalm 1611 you make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasure pleasures forevermore david rightly expects that this privilege is for the righteous he says i shall behold your face in Righteousness, because again, who shall sojourn in Yahweh's tent, who will enjoy his face, who will experience his presence? He who walks blamelessly, who does what is right, who speaks truth in his heart. But this privilege is also not fully experienced in this life. Notice that David says, when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Uh, we should understand that word awake to be referring to awaking after death. We saw uh, in uh, Psalm 13, the phrase uh, sleeping the sleep of death. This is. Discussing awaking from death. Uh, we see this in multiple places in scripture, for instance, Isaiah 26:19, God says, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise you who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy or Daniel twelve two, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting content. The one God answers sets his hope on a treasure that will be enjoyed after death and after resurrection in the next life. This, of course, is most perfectly seen in our King Jesus. Our King Jesus had his eyes set not on what he could have right here and now. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Instead, his eyes were set on a treasure to be enjoyed in the future. Right before he went to the cross, Jesus prayed in John seventeen four and 5 to his father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus had his eyes set on the glory of being in his father's presence. That was his treasure. That was his reward. That's what got him through. of the throne of God. Consider him, him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. As we look at Psalm 17 and we see. The anointed king enduring from sinners such hostility against himself. We need to consider what did he have his eyes on? How did he endure lions eager to tear? How did he endure enemies seeking to devour? How did he maintain eyes? How did he maintain lips? How did he maintain hands and feet? That didn't stray from God's word. How did he not give in to violence? How did he continue to only seek refuge in Yahweh? Because we've seen this righteous character. We've seen this trust in God's love. But we need to understand that that cannot be sustained unless our greatest treasure is the face of God. That righteous character, that trust in God's love will never last, will never endure Unless our greatest treasure is the very presence of God, the pleasures found at his right hand. Character cannot be sustained just because you want to be a good person. Trust won't last if the reward you're seeking is relief in this life or treasure in this life or ease in this life or abundance in this life. We will only last when we know that there is nothing that will satisfy our hearts but the face of God. So may we grow in our distaste for a life that only seeks pleasure in the here and now. Because we have set our eyes on a greater treasure. Turn with me to Philippians 3. One last place. Philippians 3. verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Their portion is in this life. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. May earthly things be eclipsed in our sight by a vision of the Savior whom we await from heaven. On the day that he returns, we will be raised and we will see his face. We'll see the face of the Lord who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We'll see the face of the Lord who is gentle and lowly who will give rest for our souls. We'll see the face of the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. We'll see the face of the one who gives the kingdom to the poor in spirit. We'll see the face of the one who comforts those who mourn. We'll see the face of the one who satisfies those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Will see the face of the one who has laid up a great reward in heaven for those who are persecuted on his account. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When he is our reward, then and only then will we maintain the character of the one God answers. And at that point, how can I turn from the law of this God who is my reward? When he is our reward, we'll find our refuge in his love. I know he will keep his promise to me. I know he will deliver. And so I can endure because my soul is kept by the God whose face will satisfy my soul forever. When he is our reward. We will follow the one God answers. We will follow him when he is our greatest treasure. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray together. Father. In our suffering, would we remember our treasure? In affliction, may we remember our treasure. Lord, even as we look at the blessings that evil people enjoy, would we remember it only lasts for this life? And would we set our eyes on the treasure that lasts for all of eternity? And Lord, with that fuel, our trust in your steadfast love with the reward that we have in Christ of seeing your face, your all satisfying presence. Would it lead us to find refuge in you, the savior of those who take refuge from their adversaries at your right hand? Lord, would it fuel our character, even in the face of opposition, even when it is hard to maintain? Lord, would we not just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps? Would we not just try and be a good person? But Lord, would we see the reward that is coming? And Lord. Would the things of earth grow strangely dim? Would any other path? Be distasteful to us. Lord, would we walk like Our king walked even as we suffer like our king suffered. And all the while, may we continue to make our prayer known to you as we follow the one that you answer. It's in his name we pray. Amen.